Welcome to the Deaf Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Your support keeps us going, and patrons get a second weekly episode and access to the entire back catalog of patron-only episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or pre-order Jules's new book that's coming out at the end of the month called A Short History of Trans Misogyny at your local bookstore, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So first, just a quick note, I want to apologize in advance if my voice is a little off or I sound froggy or nasally today. I'm getting over a cold. Fortunately, it's not COVID. I'm very sure about that. It's also not the flu and not RSV. It's one of the 200 odd viruses that we call the common cold. And I'm feeling okay. But the frustrating thing, which I'm going to mention today because this is an instructive sort of object lesson of the pandemic, the frustrating thing is that, you know, I maintain very strict COVID precautions, masking everywhere other than the inside of my home. I don't go out to eat. I'm not socializing. You know, it's just healthcare stuff from the grocery store. And the thing that really sucks and is so frustrating is that, like, as an immunocompromised person, I can take all of the personal precautions I want. You know, Ashish Jaws, like, choose it, you know, choose your level of protection. We have the tools. But it's actually not enough to keep me from getting sick for me to put as much precaution as I can when there are so many sick people taking no precautions who are just sick and out in public space. So one-way masking is not it. As we've said for years, masking keeps us all safe and helps us all avoid sickness and the material consequences that come with it. But it's only really effective if it's a collective endeavor. It needs to be reciprocal. We mask to keep each other safe. Anyway, on to the episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about disability and mad theory in solidarity with Palestinian liberation. Disability, impairment, madness, stability, all of this is tied up very heavily in so many aspects of the settler colonial occupation of Palestine, as well as the discourses around it, both within the settler state of Israel and the many states of the imperial core that support the ongoing eco-genocidal colonization of Palestinians in Palestine. So we'll be touching on a lot today from the construction of civilian versus militant that is frequently debated to the pathologization of resistance, rebellion, and resilience. So let's get into it. I am joined by my co-host, Jules Gil-Peterson. Hey there. And we are both honored to be in conversation with two fantastic returning guests. First is Liat Ben-Moshe. Liat is Associate Professor of Criminology, Law, and Justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago and author of the book Decarcerating Disability, Deinstitutionalization, and Prison Abolition. Liat is also the co-editor of the book Disability Incarcerated, Imprisonment and Disability in the United States and Canada. Liat, welcome back to the Death Panel. Thanks for having me again. Always so nice to have you on. And also joining us is Leah Harris. Leah is a mad and disabled writer, facilitator, educator, and advocate whose work has appeared in The Progressive, The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Disability Visibility Project, and Mad in America, among others. Leah writes the substack Writing Through and is working on their first book called Non-Compliant. Leah, welcome back to the Death Panel. It's so nice to be in conversation with you again. Thank you. Always great to be with you all. Well, I'm just so glad that you both are back on the show. It's been really nice to be in this Mm -hmm. ongoing discussion. You know, we really got talking in the summer and planning for the socialism conference session that we did together in September. And, you know, the conversation has continued throughout the recent escalation of the eco-genocide of Palestine. And um, we were actually planning a follow-up episode to the uh, Reopen the Asylums conversation, and this was sort of a an aside or an addendum where we said, you know, we really actually want to stop and talk about this first. And while the four of us are all people who live with these identities and impairments or states of body and or mind, we're people who've spent many years of our lives thinking deeply and theorizing about these ideas and concepts. But I want to make sure to emphasize that today we're not going to be jumping straight into the deep end here. I really want us to tread some 101 territory so that listeners, really whatever their background on disability theory, can get something from the conversation today. And to that point, I was thinking that a good place for us to start today is with a statement that came out in early December that is a transnational feminist disability studies statement against genocide in Gaza. And 
Liat, I wondered if you wouldn't mind summarizing this for us. There are hundreds of disability scholars from all over the world who have taken part in this, and I think it's a great place for us to start. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'd be happy to. So um, it starts as a feminist collective of transnational disability studies scholars. We have been devastated and infuriated to witness the intensifying genocide against the Palestinian people. This massive violence is rooted in historical and ongoing settler colonialism perpetuated by the governments of Israel, the U.S., and other powers. Throughout the statement, um, or, or the statement itself, tries to show how imperialism is intertwined with disablement. Mm-hmm. So we refuse to accept death or debilitation, debilitation meaning targeting people for impairment or disability. We refuse to accept that as what people call collateral damage. We talk about how um, in the statement, this is really, this forces of disablement are our core warfare mm. uh, in imperialist wars. And the effects of these are continuous, uh, ongoing. This is not like a one-time thing. There'll be generational effects of this, uh, whether it's long-term disability, targeting to kill whole families, trauma on a mass level. You know, there's various examples in the statement. So we try to anchor a decolonial commitment and understanding of U.S. complicity and centrality as imperative. Thank you for setting that up, Leah. I just want to point to that ongoingness that you highlighted, which is so important. You know, the thing to understand is that when we're talking about disability in the United States, we have a very specific and sort of fixed understanding of what that idea is. And part of it is mediated through the way that the U.S. state conceptualizes disability relative to citizenship, right? And being a member of the body politic or being, you know, on the periphery or the external bounds of the economy, so to speak. But Part of what's important to understand is that like disability as a phenomenon goes way beyond just what the government will certify as disabled, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just people who qualify for SSDI and can be certified through an insurance style process, you know, of being visibly or demonstrably disabled through their chart or or observed medical expertise. We're talking about, you know, something that touches on uh, what can be called the social model of disability, right, which is a much broader understanding of what disablement is beyond just the mere designations that a state can give a person or designations that entitle you to benefits or even, you know, frankly, diagnostic categories that entitle you to access to medications. You know, I know that for a lot of people, this may be very basic, but also it's not like this is a very obvious idea about disability. You know, we're talking about the idea that also an entire place can be disabled and not just during this current escalation of eco-genocidal violence that we've been living through, not just this year, but last year and over and over for decades now. But this is something that happens all of the time and that this is a totalizing state of being, not just for a body or a state of mind, but can also be a state of being for a place and Mm. be descriptive of a relationship that a place or a idea even has relative to, you know, other forces and powers. And so it's really also a way to sort of push past a lot of the understandings that I think dominate, especially, you know, we're speaking from the locale of the U.S. right now in dominant U.S. culture, you know, disability is a placard, is a person, is something that's legible to the state. And we're talking about something today that actually is kind of highly illegible to the state. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, um, I, I think the word that's really important here, and I know we've used it in the show before, um, is politicized, right? So there's the disability as, as identity, which some people have access to, some do not, um, meaning you can have an impairment, but never understand yourself as disabled. And there's also being politicized by your disability or madness. And so in that sense, I think the disability um, justice framework or the statement from which I just read uh, a little bit tries to anchor what does it mean to be disabled politically? Mm-hmm. And and then what does it mean then to be in solidarity and connection and intersection with other disabled people throughout the world? And what that means in this moment is absolutely 
absolutely a resistance to colonialism, to imperialism, um, to wars, not as an added thing to to disability, but as a core of what it means to be a politicized, um, disabled or mad person. Yeah, that's so well said, Leah. And yeah, part of the part of recognizing that politicization is also the places where, you know, a fantasized difference between disability in the global north and the global south helps obscure the operations of imperial warfare, settler colonialism. And I was just going back and looking at some of the news coverage that seems to be emerging, I guess, especially in the wake of World Health Organization warnings around around starvation in particular and around infectious disease outbreaks in Gaza. Uh, and just like, you know, the, the way as plenty of people have been pointing out on social media, even just like the, the grammar of that coverage, you know, removing the subject from the sentence, but also the in some ways, the depoliticization, especially of infectious disease, like as if these are, which actually reproduces that that fantasy of collateral damage, that infectious diseases are epiphenomenal um, to war or to colonialism, as opposed to part of the weapon, weaponized warfare machine, and as opposed to inherently a part of the settler colonial apparatus. And, you know, that that just feels like an urgent place, right, to, to think about how solidarity in part is about, you know, repoliticizing the way that debility and disablement and disease uh, that are, you know, policy outcomes of a state are rendered as some sort of natural epiphenomena that, you know, are are tragic and sad, but just sort of seem to occur um, almost magically. I mean, that that magic is itself part of the disavowal of settler colonial warfare. You know, it makes me think about how these efforts to um, correct these headlines that sort of remove the cause of what is framed as a natural disaster, right? And to really continue to point the finger at the perpetrators, you know, really is a part of that resistance to push up against that erasure and that framing mm. and to reiterate that this is a completely unnatural disaster that mm. is happening and that has clear, clear political causes and that we refuse that erasure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that weirdly is stuck in my head and I've been returning to is the Indigenous activist Clee Bennelly just passed on at the end of December, yeah. which is a huge loss. And I've been reading Clee's book that just came out, No Spiritual Surrender. It's fantastic. It's deep. It's challenging. I, it's, I really appreciate it. And I, I keep thinking this, like, of this one point where... <laughs> He's like, you know, when we're talking about, quote unquote, the solution for homelessness, right? The the fascist appeal is direct and obviously genocidal. I'm paraphrasing here, not quoting. But um, and the liberal appeal, you know, it keeps up appearances. Right. And it's really about asking, how do we make this problem go away without spending any money behind mm. it? And it's really, truly amazing to see, for example, the amount of investment that the United States puts into the securitization and militarization of Israel, into the justifying and perpetuating media apparatus and international political apparatus that's required in order to sustain such obvious violence, right? And it gives us a chance to actually step back and sort of look at, like, what does it mean to be settlers who are living in a settler state who is putting all of these resources towards that, right? In a state where also the settler colonial nation that we live in, you know, has tremendous things that are going under and unresourced and completely ignored, right? The kinds of ways that both the vulnerability and the disposability of Palestinians is naturalized by the U.S. state and the vulnerability and disposability of indigenous people in this land that we're occupying here right now while we're recording each of us in a different place, the disabled identity, right, and like how disability relates to the state and the really important role that settler colonialism and justifying settler colonialism 
um, plays to the U.S.'s power and hegemony. Like it, it's really important, I think, as disabled people to understand the really complex milieu that we're embedded in here, because in a, you know, in its most base sense, settler colonialism is like never consensual for those some of us, you know in these later generations, but it's also something that's not like a absolutely historical process, right? It's ongoing, it requires continued maintenance, and a really important part of even grappling with that and grappling with the contradiction of living in a settler state or relying on funds from that settler state for disability payments or petitioning that government for access to medications or for recognition as a disabled person. You know, I'm thinking specifically of folks in the long COVID community here. It's really important to grapple with these ways that we're embedded with, benefiting from, and dependent on for example, the U.S.'s perpetuation of colonialism. And it's important to sort of ask if any of this is all fucking necessary. <laughs> you know what I mean? The the ways that we've seen COVID be normalized, the federal emergency on COVID was ended prematurely, and it really cut off the picture of what COVID was in the United States. And we saw Biden stand up an emergency to get billions of dollars of money to Israel for weapons like it I just snapped which is bad radio like it was no big deal right like you know and and overnight right it, it's really important to to think through like what is an emergency to the state and why when particularly like we're up against advocacy that you know we've been for example like folks in the COVID community right like what does it mean to sort of have a, a failed appeal or appeal for this funding in the context of really knowing how the U.S. spends its money resources and where the priorities lie well and also as a you know uh, disability justice people abolitionists and so on I mean I I think the example you brought out the kind of unnatural disaster that you were talking about. Mm. I mean, I think we can think about the, you know, even when aid is discussed, like I'm not even talking weapons because I think that's like a low hanging fruit for, yeah. you know, for, for activists, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think we can agree on the non-weapon, but hopefully, right? Uh, hopefully. Um, but what about the aid in terms of health, mm -hmm. food, shelter, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of a aid? I think there's something to be said about how that's used and kind of weaponized and how also at least some Palestinian activists um, and also around the world, you know, in Haiti and so on are like, we don't want you all aid because we know what you're going to do, right? It's kind of a, an occupation by proxy and, and sometimes not by proxy, like literal occupation, right? We've mm -hmm. seen the U.S. doing that as well. Um, and I think what people are calling for and again, this is why it was important in the statement to not say at the end, we call for the opening of the border with Egypt and for aid to, because I think, again, low hanging fruit, we call for the end of occupation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like the sort of NGO relationship that exists and the ways that that also becomes this entire industry and, and mm -hmm. global public health in particular, you know, it's like, I guess a, a good pairing with this episode is the uh, Adia Benton interview from last year. But like the idea of like, OK, so what, we're going to negotiate for like 100 aid trucks a day instead of 75, right? It's like th these kinds of thresholds and these discussions that you can get dragged into around this stuff, especially when it comes to like, oh, you know, we want to make sure that this is like treated as an international crime or whatever, or under, you know, we want to make sure that Israel's like towing the law or <laughs> these kinds of like ways of winning on technicality. I think actually like the lived experience of disability and disability theory give you a lot of good material reasons why if you are at the table negotiating, you have already lost, right? I'm just thinking back to, for example, a recent disability uh, sort of scandal in the U.S. Um, was when Rochelle Walensky was saying that it was encouraging that the only people who were dying of breakthrough COVID right. infections were people who were already unwell to begin with. And, you know, it was a bit of a scandal, a bit of an outcry. She, of course, did a listening session with a lot of disability advocates. You know, people like Matt Cortland went to the table, then they listened to her, and they, I'm sure, exchanged harsh words. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
it's like, well, what came out of that, right? Did anything change in terms of the way that the U.S. government was conceptualizing um, vulnerability or disability or immunocompromised people just existing in the world, right? After that fact, like, did they actually listen to those activists? Or was that a moment of co-optation? Was that a moment where, you know, our, our energies were effectively neutralized by these counterinsurgent tactics that the state employs all the time. And so it's really, I think, it's key and it's important to understand also the kind of dire circumstances um, put even more urgent pressure on all of us to think through these things incredibly deeply, no matter how challenging and upsetting and difficult it might be to like sit with the complicity that everyone sort of has with the violence that we've been seeing in the last 90 plus days. Yeah. The 60,000 plus people who are wounded, right? Like these, these numbers, like these are all people, right? Like every single one of those is is a person who may have like a care relationship with another person who may already be disabled, right? Who may be a, a person who's providing medical care, right? When we think about what Israel is doing through the escalation of bombing and of really kind of block by block land wars taking territory in Gaza. It's it's really, it's a terrible object lesson in how, you know, military strategy involves intentional disablement, not just in, in one aspect, but in a totalizing sense, right? You're going to, you're going to attack the water, you're going to attack the healthcare infrastructure, you're going to attack, you know, the physical space, shelter, power, all of these things, but then each person who is injured, who, you know, needs care, et cetera, like all of these community relationships, family relationships that are destabilized, all of the trees that are killed, right? All of those olive trees that are just bombed and are gone now. This is like an entire ecology, right? That is being disabled. And like, that is what war making is. Yeah, I, I don't know. If you heard this, and this is, you know, just one statement, but that uh, an aide in the government, you know, that comes from a think tank in Tel Aviv University, he said that Gaza should be flattened. You know, they love to use that word and they should build an eco park on it. So oh, there you go. Uh, greenwashing galore. But, you know, but 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 your point also about able washing, I think, is very, mm. you know, very well taken. I mean, I think that. There's um, something that, again, people here can recognize through COVID. And I just wanted to to put this word out because I know it's on all our minds, which is eugenics. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's like the core of what's going on. So part of what's going on, like you just said, in terms of land um, is absolutely about, you know, ethnic cleansing. It's about um, very kind of basic um, settler colonialism. But intertwined with that is this eugenicist impetus. And I think that that's really kind of core. Eugenics, like as a practice, is like undergrading a lot of Mm. these um, kind of colonial strategies of of incarceration, Mm -hmm. of, again, connecting, you know, our kind of abolitionist sensibilities to the question of Palestine. It's about the violence, again, of colonialism itself, of settler colonialism itself, of Zionism itself, which is, of course, connected connected to white supremacy, um, you know, and so on. So I don't know if you all want to kind of jump on the eugenicist uh, um, thing, but but I would be interested to kind of hearing um, some thoughts. No, I think that's so spot on. I mean, it you know, it makes me think about the mechanics of eugenics, right? Because like there's eugenic ideology, which at its core, you know, are a set of wild fantasies about about racial superiority, you know, but those don't exist. And so it's like the the mechanics of eugenics have to produce that fiction. And it it just makes me think that, you know, the 19th century notion that was very popular, both for U.S. settler colonial science, but also in the British Empire, the fantasy of so-called, quote unquote, like dying races, groups of people Mm -hmm. that that colonial states selected for eradication, but part of their justification for state policies 
that led to mass dispossession of land and kinship structures, theft of property, mass starvation, disease, and, and then sometimes also outright killing, but more often than not, a lot of incarceration and dispossession and just sort of waiting out for, for genocide to be accomplished over a certain time scale, right? Like the justification from kind of state science was like, well, this quote unquote race was doomed to die out because it's not fit enough. And it's like, okay, that's actually just an alibi for producing the conditions under which people die as this kind of self serving loop. And it just like part of what I'm hearing all of us talking about that I find really helpful is like starting from the premise of disability and a demand of transnational you know, disability solidarity, which is for the end of the occupation, is that it understands the event that's ongoing right now on, and genocide is transpiring over a much longer time scale than just you know, a particular military action, which is like killing so many more people and causing so much more damage, is moving so quickly and in such an extreme way. Um, but it serves like the state narratives, it serves imperial narratives of war to imagine war as this like exceptional event that's taking place right now where you, you get to then quibble over those details or negotiate over those like this many, this, you know, aid trucks and, and and like part of how that serves the ends of the colonial state is by disappearing this long term eugenic practice about how do you produce the lie that an entire population of people are in some way doomed, right? Um, how do you hide your own um, culpability for that production? I think part of it is through generations of mass disablement and incarceration. It, there's just like only centuries of historical examples here, right? But we don't even, yeah, I mean, it's just mm -hmm. so, it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, there's that transnational solidarity moment. <laughs> like, obviously, what's going on in Gaza is deeply informed at the, like, level of practice by the history of the United States and the extermination and genocidal practices visited upon indigenous peoples over centuries. I mean, just like, absolutely, right? I mean, I think that's, yeah, there's just something really clarifying about where 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 this if we start here where is our attention drawn right mm -hmm. uh, and how how big do we understand the scale of the violence but also then how large does the demand right for for justice have to be to actually address the enormity of what's going on well and i i mean actually uh, i'll bring in a quote from alice wong here who wrote a piece in december for her blog um for a disability visibility project called Why Palestinian Liberation is Disability Justice. And I, I appreciated the way that Alice sort of directly, you know, was addressing the disability community here. But this is also really like, I think, instructive even for people who don't really know anything about like disability culture in the US. Uh, so Alice writes, Solidarity isn't transactional or conditional. While it's clear that approximately 50,000 disabled Gazans face great danger, disabled people shouldn't care just because they can relate to what's happening. Cross-movement solidarity is another disability justice principle that I deeply believe in. We need to build relationships and show up for other movements because it's a way to build power and it's just the right thing to do. So, you know, part of what is, is important to understand here, right, is that there are so many different ways that we're going to talk about how different concepts of disability can help sort of understand like what's going on in terms of the pathologization of resistance to this eugenic eco-genocide that's going on. That's not just concentrating in Palestine, but right now, you know, is something that is happening all over the world. There is even talk of, well, what if we, there's like discussion of a displacement project of like Israel shipping people from Palestine to Congo, like literally doing i think the exact same plan that germany had in the in the 30s mm. to do that and so there's it's just like what we're trying to do here is actually just sort of say like part of what is important to disability justice and is part of disability theory is about you know building these relationships showing up for other movements taking what we have to offer and trying to help others build power with it, right, in their movements where they are in ways that we can be in solidarity with them. And so a great way of thinking through, in particular, both the eugenic logics that are applying directly within Palestine and against Palestinians, but also the eugenic logics that are applied against folks who are resisting this from within the imperial core is really key. And, mm. and this is actually, you know, 
something that it's it's great to have Lan Liot on for in particular, right? Because the pathologization of resistance to genocide is mm. that, you know, folks are irrational, they are crazy, that they are violent, right? The the phrase from the river to the sea has been like called an incitement of violence or anti-Semitic in its like target, right? And so obviously, you know, we have the kind of frameworks within disability theory and communities and mad communities of, you know, really understanding like what is rationality, right? In the face of Mm. extreme displacement, genocidal pressure, can you really sort of look at somebody saying in the imperial core, fuck this, not ever, ever should we be sending $14 billion to support genocide? Like, to say that that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it it just makes me all of this makes me think about the ways in which eugenics and genocide are so intertwined, right? In the sense of, of needing to lay that groundwork, you know, by the colonial powers of who is and is not worthy of life, who is and is not worthy of being able to dissent, right? And kind of, I think part of our solidarity as, as disabled folks is to be continually making these connections and integrating them into our own resistance. And I really just want to highlight an article um, that appeared a couple months ago by um, Naman Abdelwahid, um, Pathologizing Palestinians to Revive Eugenic Genocide, which gives a really, really good historical uh, way of understanding, you know, what the mechanisms that are operating now. And um, he says, quote, the British and Western media framed the resistance's advance in terms which elided the colonial roots of the resistance's raison d'etre, which is freedom from occupation and colonialism. Instead, the Palestinian resistance was in effect pathologized, depicted as beholden to a mental sickness rather than as a commitment to a noble political cause that's rooted in centuries-long resistance to Western colonialism and imperialism, unquote, right? And so how this, this groundwork has been laid for so long that paints Palestinians as having this irrational, quote, you know, bloodthirsty hatred of Jews, um, which really belies the fact that, right, Palestinians themselves have said they would resist their oppressors, whatever their religion or identity. This has been pointed out by many, but um, I'll point listeners especially to an essay by Mohammed al-Kurd and Mondo Weiss that's titled Jewish Settlers Stole My House. It's not my fault that they are Jewish. And so, right. (laughs) It's a good title. It's such a great title. So it's like seeing that, right, how that pathologizing is operating, right, um, towards Palestinians as a uh, justification for the genocide that's happening right now. Um, We can see how those same dynamics, certainly not expressed in precisely the same way, but in the same intensity and scale, um, but, you know, thinking about even here in the U.S., um, you know, how we pathologize resistance, right, in mm-hmm. a whole number of ways. Um, thinking about specifically the term anasognosia. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that now. Oh, but, yes, please. Yeah. Right. As part of the overall sort of eugenics project, right, that it's this this diagnosis that's, you know, started really looking more at brain injury, but over the last 30 years has been extended to the quote mental health realm, really as a way to justify the punishment, the discipline, the incarceration um, of those deemed quote, severely mentally ill and lacking insight into their condition. Right. And, you know, the people who are sort of um, pushing this anasognosia framework are highlighting a very, very small number of violence and murders that are committed by people diagnosed with mental illness as this justification, right, for the expansion of state intervention, forced treatment, institutionalization, Mm. right? So you have, you know, the quote, violent people on one side, and then on the other side, this, this framework is also extended to those who are unhoused, right? Why are they unhoused? That question is never Mm -hmm. asked. Mm -hmm. You know, for the reasons that we can all talk about and our listeners know, right, it's been extended, you know, to those folks who are unhoused and unable to secure housing and or healthcare, even healthcare for themselves, right? Mm. 
know, who in America in this day and age are largely black and brown. So you have, you know, both the, those who are, quote, considered dangerous, the violent ones and the innocent sort of victims of a, of a nameless houselessness, both being pathologized by the state in this very white supremacist kind of paternalism. Um, and I just will add a few more things. A central characteristic of so-called anosognosia is the refusal to accept one's diagnosis or mm. destiny, right? And it is mm. precisely this resistance, which is pathologized, where compliance, right, literally that's the term that's used, mm -hmm. seem to be the the cure or the way to person has been treated, right? So- mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This tendency, you know, talking just to the to the U.S. settler colonial U.S. context, right? This has a long history. This isn't something yeah. that um, emerged in the last thirty years. But for example, the ways in which the pseudoscience diagnosis of drapetomania uh -huh. was organized against enslaved people for their wish to be free, right? And how in the sixties and seventies, black power activists were pathologized on mass for their resistance to white supremacy, right? And and we can see how these kind of colonial concepts, these the sorting of human beings. Um, applies when we think about how resistance movements generally are pathologized, right? How Hamas is pathologized and resistance movements overall, and this demonization that is ongoing, um, you know, expressed by pundits and politicians, right? For for a refusal of an individual or a movement to mm. accept or comply with the status quo. Mm. So well said. Yeah. And see, this is, it's, and I really appreciate the way that you laid it out in terms of it's a process of sorting. And this is really key to understand because it's not, it's not really, it's not building power to say, you know, against an accusation of crazy that you're not crazy. Right. It's it's that doesn't help. To, that's par participating in the sorting. Right. Mm -hmm. What's important is to understand, you know, how does this accusation function materially, structurally within the specific context? And what what does that accusation sort of do? You know, the the yeah. point is not to assert the sanity of one group over another and the rationality of one group uh, at the expense of another, right? And that's why this is, again, you know, a, a moment where it's important to distinguish between disability rights and disability justice because disability justice explicitly is working against the fact that older disability movements sometimes built their power off each other and mm -hmm. off claiming, you know, I deserve freedom because I am not sick or I am not crazy. I am not disabled. I'm just crazy. You know, all of these different ways. It's important to really think through like, okay, so what is actually trying to be accomplished in the designation of like one group being uh, deserving and one group being undeserving, right? What is the kind of political rationality and calculus of designating one group as eugenic and one group as dysgenic, right? As good reading, good stock, good body politic and bad, non-compliant body politic, right? Um, those that need to be called and weeded out. And that power to sort of lay, you know, down the kind of line, the, the prudence of what's good and what's bad that is like very much where the violence and the power of the state lies, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also per like a moment where the state is perceived as like benevolent and sparing and caring and maybe uh. um, giving of grace or or justice in some way, right? These sort of ways that we think about, for example, state officials who might speak out against this, right? They they might feel that their speech needs to be constrained and that they need to say, well, this genocide is in Gaza is genocide because uh, civilians are being killed, because women and children are being killed, because disabled and sick people are being killed, because the already injured are being killed. And what does that say about the other, right? You know, like in every yeah. sort of designation of a worthy subject, you're drawing a line for sorting and for designating like who shall be saved and who doesn't deserve the the state's resources or attention, um, who is dysgenic. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm so glad we're 
breaking down this part of it because I feel like the the way that the like basically role of psychiatry has just been like baked into the state to 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 depoliticize entire movements. I mean, just the foundational fraudulence of claiming that people who are acting politically in you know in defense of the interests of themselves and their people are in fact not only not acting politically but uh but are psychotic for doing so right that they are unaware of what they are doing they're not in control of their own actions they're you know acting irrationally or out of some sort of base um you know inhuman motivation i mean it's such a powerful rationale it's hard for me to think of a more dehumanizing disqualifying rationale and i feel like you know there are these long histories of actual clinicians you know participating in that leah you named a bunch of them and i was also thinking of like french psychiatry's role in pathologizing algerian anti-colonial resistance like there's so many examples of of clinicians doing it um but now it's just sort of baked into the rhetoric of the state and i feel like it's been lurking underneath especially like earlier especially in october i feel like just in the like extreme disavowal of the idea that there even could be anti-colonial <laughs> resistance going on that that was just like an impermissible statement in of itself just felt like so loaded with this ginned up like old psychiatric uh dehumanization of political resistance as a form of psychosis in and of itself where yeah the only cure is for you to admit um um, that well is actually just for you to become compliant, right? You don't have to admit anything. You just have to completely submit to to wrongful power over you. I mean, it's just so it's just so macabre. It, sorry, it gets me so so worked up. But yeah, I'm glad we're taking the time to to talk about that part because I feel like that aspect of it often is delinked from um, from conversations around physical disabilities or physiologically manifesting disabilities or disease, um, and and we don't often get to sort of point out how they work uh, in lockstep with one another. Well, another um, thing to connect what you were both saying is maybe to think about the construction of, of terrorism. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, yeah, Jules, what you were just like referring to, the kind of construction of Palestinians as animals and so on. Um, the way that psychiatry intervenes in the construction of terrorism uh, I'm sure you've had shows about this. Um, this is not something that started, you know, um, now. But particularly, I think folks should pay attention to what's going on now in terms of this program of the countering violent extremism. Mm -hmm. uh, the work of uh, Nicole Wen just released a report called a Political Psychiatry. Uh, it's really available online. And the, the way that, um, first of all, individuals are constructed as terrorists versus mm. like groups. Right. The way that mm. white supremacy like really sips in to how we construct dangerousness. You know, those of us who are abolitionists to understand, you know, police as terror, not just police terror, but police as terror always understand how white supremacy is, you know, kicked in there. Right. Who is considered to be violent with just their bodies um, mm. or for just being non-compliant the way that Leah was just talking about. Mm. So I think the construction of, of danger, the construction of terrorism um, is taken away from the kind of political spectrum of, of, of resistance, um, I think is also related to the function of um, psychiatry amongst others. I mean, it's also in education, for example. Um, um, can I say, can I say one more thing about carceral? Yeah, of course. Of course. Carceral sanism has been kind of bothering me and, um, you know, there's something going on now for people who don't like understand how stuff works in 48, like in Israel. Israel, in addition to being, this, you know, what we call here settler colonial um, people in Israel talk about Zionism as, as a more kind of um, uh, specific framework. Uh, I think I'm using settler colonialism because I think that's also what connects it to U.S. settler colonialism and also something that maybe the listeners understand a little bit more. Um, but it's um, Zionism as an ideology is very racist, um, including towards Jews. It's very Zionist. <laughs> um, it talks about, you know, a, an ideology of in addition to like inhabiting, you know, this this land. Um, it's an ideology of uh, overcoming like the weak Jew. Right. Like so to have mm -hmm. this like healthy new um, that it's really is um, ideology of at its root eugenics. 
um but also again this this kind of like overcoming the this uh jew that just you know sits and studies or, or whatever so some way it's also kind of this anti-intellectualism which is also something that's used now I'm, I'm just gonna say i give two examples and you can uh, respond or wrap up but the two examples are um israel has been very good um at targeting medical people journalists um scientists in Gaza and more generally like in the territories, uh, but particularly now in Gaza. And I think part of it is also to kind of show like, look, Palestine is so backwards. It doesn't have infrastructure, you know, all of that mm-hmm. when Israel did that. Right. But it's all this kind of um, idea of like Leo was saying in the beginning of our conversation of not understanding who the perpetrator is. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the sort of characteristic uh, kind of like, most, I think, uh, cartoonish, <laughs> ironic use of the word, I guess, cartoonish representation of the kind of Zionist attitude about the quote unquote diaspora is like uh, Ellie Valley's Diaspora Boy comic, um, which mm. is <laughs> just like a it's a it's a good introduction to to yeah. understanding eugenics and Zionism if you're if you're not familiar. But I think the point that you know, you were speaking to Liat in some ways is like almost how these realities that that are claimed in the in the global sphere and politically like that uh, Israel is like it, as a unified block, like all in on Zionism or that Palestine is like backwards or, you know, lacks infrastructure or is in the kind of like, again, I'm thinking of, of Clee Benelli's work, you know, the kind of pre-modern um, period is are all, you know, also conditions mm-hmm. that are directly being created um, by the settler occupation and by the direct aggression and the ecocide and the trade policies and the law and the international law and the rest of the laws and the global core of imperial countries that support and fund this, right? So when we're looking to understand disability, right, we have to look to these larger structures that mitigate and and sort of apply those downward pressures that put us in that position of being you know, designated as vulnerable, right? We have to understand like the context of that vulnerability and how the state in some sense prefigures the burden and the disposability and the disallocation of resources, the organized and disorganized abandonment of targeted populations to the benefit of really just the continuation of the settler project writ large, which is what capitalism is. You can't like extract the settler colonialism and capitalism. These are structures that make each other possible. And okay. it's important to understand that that I think that these realities, much like the concepts that we're up against when it comes to carceral sanist um, mental health care reforms in the United States, you know, the ideas of, of, of more humane, uh, you know, treatment jails, forced treatment, things like it being uh, necessary, things like that. These, these kind of frameworks are, again, like we're up against things that require active maintenance to be constructed, right? That are not mm. in and of themselves mm. realities. And how that's accomplished is through, you know, state eugenics, which is always talked about in terms of breeding, but importantly, should also always be understood as a process of the state sorting and marking which populations are going to get advantages and which populations are going to get disadvantages. And the only way that that really actually plays out is in terms of provisioning, distribution, and extraction. And and that's all mitigated in terms of law and policy. Um, And so in some ways, you know, these kinds of ways of looking at that these things structurally can feel, I don't know, dialistic or destabilizing. But at the same time, it's like we all know these structures so well. We are all deeply embedded in them. And I think that, you know, to call back to the words of Rasha Abdulhadi, who we had on the show back in October, October 16th, you know, and Rasha said, you need to do anything and everything to throw even the sand under your fingernails into the gears of the settler colonial project. And that 
requires a tremendous amount of thinking and also willingness to refuse and to act and to also be curious about why something might be uh, deemed antisocial or targeted or called mm. dangerous or called terrorism um, when perhaps like that, what that sort of object that is actually like terrorizing uh, the state is, is something that is like counter to the objective of like continuing the settler project. I mean, I, I think back to um, the conversation I had with Jessica Phoenix Sylvia about censorship in prison and books being censored for the cause and reason that the book itself is a threat to the the perpetuation of <laughs> the carceral institution and therefore cannot be allowed within the walls, right? And how that censorship isn't just towards one person, but then, you know, when Jess's book is banned, that shuts down like Jess as a node of information that disseminates to her entire community within the institution. And then you can, you know, I'm not trying to say like books... <laughs> break walls. But you know what I mean? Like, it's just that it's everything. And that the sort of powers that we are up against are powers that require constant maintenance. And we are all part of that and recognizing our roles in that. And the sort of ways that our our lives and our participation in the body politic and, and our resources and the ways that we contribute willingly and unwillingly to these projects are part of where we can also find moments and, and points of resistance and theory that we can offer to struggles that we are in solidarity with in the hopes that the things that we learn here inside the machine that we are in can help someone inside a different machine build power for themselves. Yeah, it makes me, um, everything was so right on Beatrice and, mm -hmm. and some of what you were saying made me think about you know, really making the connections with, um, yes, the way people with disabilities are pathologized and punished and disciplined, you know, by the imperial core and the settler colonial framework and regimes, but also the pathologizing of protesters here and how we have responded to it, right? And like how to kind of avoid those dichotomizing traps of, you know, victims and perpetrators. Um, and it just made me think about um, November 15th when folks were mobilizing against the Democratic National Committee. There was a big meeting in D.C. And, you know, the way lawmakers sort of spun out this rhetoric of being victimized by these mm -hmm. protesters, right? Kind of that same sort of pathologizing, like they're irrationally blocking doors, you know, and the, the message, uh, messaging in response, which a lot of us vehemently rejected this framing, kept repeating, like, we were peaceful and nonviolent protesters. Mm -hmm. And like, when you're making that argument, I think, Beatrice, you made that point is like, you've already sort of lost when you're kind of trying to, mm -hmm. you know, just put yourself in one or other of those of that dichotomy, right. And there was like this defensiveness that came about, you know, much in the same way that, you know, I've seen and recognized mad people being on the defensive against efforts to paint them as dangerous, citing that kind of research, right, that, you know, mm. we're more likely to be victims and perpetrators of violence. It's kind of like falling into that same mm. trap, right? And of course, moreover, it's all ignored, right, because of the carceratism <laughs> and the settler, settler colonial instinct to always conflate madness and resistance as dangerous, right? And then, you know, you can also see this operating and how, you know, what are deemed as nonviolent forms of protest, like the Great March of Return in 2018 in Gaza and, and BDS and how other movements that didn't involve armed resistance still kind of face that same punishment, mm. weaponization. It's criminalized here in something like, what, 32 states here in the U.S. to be involved with BDS. You know, people have to sign oaths and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So it's just this huge kind of like mass gaslighting operation. And I think it's so important to be thinking in terms of, of how we're talking about resistance to avoid sort of falling into these dichotomizing traps. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I'm just sitting with what you were just saying. I mean, it's like that that perennial question about <laughs> if you've already it, like if your if your political solidarities have already been prefigured by the state as irrational 
what real benefit is there in trying to pass yourself off as reasonable after like, you know, like I understand the impulse. I don't mean like, why do people do that? It's just sort of like, eh, to what end? Right. I mean, the, mm -hmm. any, any sort of victories on the other side, which there will probably be very few of will be Pyrrhic. They'll be hollow. Uh, and I just keep, yeah. You know, thinking that there's, there's something more, I don't know. It just feels different to start from from a place of solidarity that rejects the the sort of um, the ridiculousness of of being framed out in advance as irrational and and incapable of of, of doing anything uh, meaningful. It's like ah, just fuck that, fuck that. <laughs> I just feel like we've been having a conversation about um, you know a different starting place that already exists mm -hmm. that so many people around the world. Um, are a part of and one that just feels so much more immediate and tangible and meaningful um, than trying to to chase a showdown with a with a totally fraudulent set of premises that are you know allowing for state sponsored settler violence and genocide. Like yeah, it, it feels. I mean, it both feel like I was going to say it feels easy to to let go of all that nonsense, except like. It's not easy. It's very hard. Um, but just in terms of like emotional satisfaction, um, there's just something, I don't know, there's just a certain kind of relief about giving up the the most outrageous uh, fictions mm -hmm. uh, to which you to which we are all subjected differently, but nevertheless subjected uh, every day. There is something actually empowering about about doing that in concert with other people, right? In in, in actual relationships of solidarity. That's how you build um build strength here here well put leah any final points no pressure to make a final point though i think my only point is um our hearts are with uh, people of gaza right now yeah. but also you know i think it's important to say for the people um who are listening to the death panel uh in gaza and the territories and and palestine that you know, we're more than thinking about you, yeah. you know, um, I think every day all of us are engaged in various ways against these machines, processes and um, murderous apparatuses that we discussed, you know, for the last hour. So I just wanted to put yeah. it out there uh, really, you know, for my heart. Well, now that I'm crying, I think that's a great place to leave it for today. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you both, uh, Leah, Liat, for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for all of the generous time that you've given to our listeners this year and really appreciate yeah. every chance to talk. And patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And of course, if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, just do whatever you can in solidarity with Palestine. As always... Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
corazón de su vida y de mi vida doy cuánto tiene altura como llegar con cordura dejo la locura me llevo latas